This is our sixth session on Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, and we're going to focus today on verse 13. In fact, we'll spend, I think, three sessions on verse 13. Let me read it in context, and I'll tell you where we're going. He, the risen Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds or pastors and teachers, and then the goal of that apostolic, prophetic, revelatory, authoritative deposit, which we now have in the New Testament, and the goal of evangelists bringing people to be saints out of unbelief, and the goal of shepherds as those people gather into flocks and are taught, which is the main thing shepherds do, not the only thing, but the main thing, is for the equipping of the saints, all Christians, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, and now a time frame, until how long will this work of apostolic authority through the Bible, converting people to Christ, uh, shepherds and teachers uh, teaching and and all the saints doing the work of the ministry and building up. How long will that go on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? So in this session, we will talk about until we attain the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what we'll focus on. Next time, we're going to talk about what does the term Son of God mean? This is the only place in Ephesians where Christ is called the Son of God. And in our third session, then, we'll move on to talk about what is this mature man, and why does he say the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as another way of describing the mature man or the body of Christ. So, Father, as we try to understand the goal of the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, get our hearts ready to be unified in faith and get our minds ready to be unified in knowledge. And oh, make us a means, since we're all in this category who are Christians, make us a means of this goal until it comes to pass or until we come home to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back and remind ourselves that he's not bringing the issue of unity to the fore for the first time in those verses. Here's the beginning of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is probably a ground clause here, because the reason there exists a unity of the Spirit and should be maintained is because there is one body. There is one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. Now, that's what we have down here in our text, one faith, one baptism. So here's the difference between this text and what we're looking at here. The unity of the Spirit is a given. 
It's not something to be pursued or created. It's something to be maintained, kept. So that's created by Christ. As we're all united to Christ, we are, in fact, united in the Spirit. Now, what happens in these verses, 11 to 14? Here's how we go about pursuing this unity until we all attain to the unity. That's very different, isn't it? In those first verses, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. Here we are pursuing all of this um, authority, all this evangelism, all these shepherds and teachers, all this equipping, all this ministry, all this building up is until we attain, by those means, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's very different. So we have a given unity, the unity of the Spirit of true believers, and now we are supposed to work that out over time. We'll, we'll talk later about uh, when this is. We'll do that in another session. But until it happens, we're supposed to be about this. Lean on the apostles, do the work of an evangelist, teach earnestly, equip saints. All of us saints do the work of ministry, build up the body until this comes to pass. Now, my question today mainly is, why does he focus on unity of the faith and, and then we are to understand, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God? We can tell that more clearly in Greek than you can in English, but it's pretty obvious in English that unity goes with both. Unity of the faith, unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Is there a difference between the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? When you put the in front of faith, lots of people think, well, then it becomes doctrine, right? It becomes knowledge. And it, in a way, that's true. You can talk about the faith, meaning the body of doctrine that constitutes the Christian faith. But the fact that he put both of them here inclines me to think they're almost the same, but not quite the same. See if you think this is, is right. The faith, unity of the faith, I think, does want us to think of our believing, our having faith in the faith. Otherwise, the word faith would probably be not used here alongside knowledge. He would just say the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what the faith is. It's the full orb knowledge of all that God in Christ is and all that he's done. That's the faith. But he says faith here, and so I'm going to say that this unity of the faith is unity of truth embraced. And this is unity of truth Oh, what should we say? Understood. So by emphasizing knowledge, he says we are to have a common understanding about the Son of God. And when he uses the word faith, he wants there to be more than a common understanding, but also a common trusting, a common embracing, a common receiving, a common experience. You could say we have a common a treasury. And we have a common 
Treasuring. This is a subjective experience that's involved in faith, and this is the objective truth believed and treasured. Now, why would he do that? Well, picture this. What if um, all of us had exactly the same understanding of Christ? Everybody, perfectly the same doctrine. And some of us loved him and some of us didn't. Some of us embraced that truth and some of us didn't. Some of us admired it and some of us didn't. Some of us were moved by it and others were left indifferent by it. That's not the goal. That's not what he's after in this time frame. He's after a common understanding so that we all love the truth. We don't have different views of Christ. And he's after the experience of Christ being loved, trusted, believed, received the same, or turn it around. What if we all had exactly the same faith, exactly the same enthusiasm, exactly the same embracing and treasuring, but we had wildly different views of Christ. Some of us believed he was divine, and some of us believed he was a mere man. That, that's not what he's after. So I think the reason there is unity of the faith alongside unity of the knowledge of the Son of God is because there's a double goal in all this ministry. And the first goal is that we all know the same truths about him. There are two Christs. There is one Christ. There is one way of salvation. He has one way of being. And he wants us all to share that. That's why there's such an emphasis on teaching here and knowledge and doctrine. But he's not eager to have a people with wonderfully intellectually accurate knowledge perfectly on the same theological page and all of us all over the map in our faith. So I think even though he calls it the faith here, there's a different emphasis or focus than knowledge, and that would be knowledge embraced, knowledge received, knowledge believed, knowledge loved. And here it's full and accurate knowledge. So that's the goal. He's going to pursue this kind of ministry as we work toward that kind of unity until a certain time. And we'll talk about that next time, along with what does the Son of God mean?